Welcome to this Endo Life, episode 57. I'm Jessica Duffin and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by my friends at BU. It can be really hard to find a CBD brand to trust. So many have vague information or charge over £100 for a tiny bottle or tub and you don't really know if it's worth it. The descriptions are vague. So that's why I was so happy that BU brought out a CBD range, which includes drops, sprays and a balm. This CBD has been developed by scientists to bring you the best quality, pure CBD made with organic oils, flavours and natural CBD. To shop the range, just head to the link in my show notes and start soothing period cramps the natural way. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis symptom tracker. If you feel like you're in pain all the time or you're tired all the time and you just can't tell what's making your endo better or worse, which is what I'm currently dealing with with my interstitial cystitis, I can never say that word, then this tracker could help you begin to understand subtle patterns in your endometriosis symptoms. By using this tracker every day, charting your mood, pain, brain fog and other symptoms and noting down what you eat, your stress levels and lifestyle habits, you'll begin to understand the crucial relationship between your body, your life and endometriosis. Understanding this is key to making changes that actually work and have a positive effect. As always, this guide doesn't replace your medical treatment and it's not intended to treat or cure endometriosis, but it provides you with a tool that I use personally to help me live well with endometriosis and work out what was helping me and wasn't helping me. To download, just head to the show notes and follow the link to get your free copy. This episode is just such an important one. Lauren Cornegay is the founder of Endo Black, which is a safe space and community for people of colour and African Americans affected by endo. After being diagnosed with endometriosis and discovering that she couldn't find any materials or info that represented her or didn't centre around cis white women, she decided to go out and create it for herself and the communities that have been so underrepresented, not just in their kind of endomedical community, but also the reproductive health medical community. I think I'm making up that word, but you know what I mean. The medical community that deal with reproductive health. These communities have been so underrepresented and also not just underrepresented, but discriminated against and quite frankly abused. When I read the book Period Power, Maisie Hill included some stats that I found so like just shocking to my core. Um, so I thought I would add those in. I haven't put all of them in because there's quite a few. Um, but yeah, I've added some of them in and you can obviously read the book um, or do some extra research. But here are a few of them. Black women are more likely than white women to have unnecessary surgeries such as hysterectomies. A 2012 review of endo research found that only two articles were devoted to endometriosis in black women. They were published in 1975 and 1976 and found that black women with endometriosis tended to be incorrectly diagnosed with a pelvic inflammatory disease, disease which is caused by sexually transmitted infections. In the UK, black women are five times more likely to die in in the childbirth year than white women do, and Asian women are twice as likely to. Maisie also... um, goes on to explain some kind of historical background and I've taken a few quotes from there. In the American South, there is a history of medical students practicing medically unnecessary hysterectomies on poor black women without informed consent. And it was the experimental reproductive surgeries performed on black enslaved women in the 1920s and 1930s that gave birth to modern American gynecology. I mean, that last... Yeah... That, that last quote is just sickening, really. And there's more in the book. And Lauren and I discuss about how these surgeries were performed without any anaesthetic. 
So clearly, Lauren's work is so necessary, and she's working hard to create support and representation for people of colour, African Americans, and other groups that the medical industry has missed when it comes to treating and managing endo. She's looking to create change within our policies and laws, um, and to begin creating like conversations and awareness within these communities so that the taboo of periods and endometriosis is broken down and these communities can start um, seeking support and asking for support and realising that they are not getting the support that they need and demanding for that change. In this episode, we talk about Lauren's personal story and the experiences that she's had as an African-American woman with endometriosis. Um, We also talk about the issues facing people of colour and African-Americans with endo and how we can collectively work together to make the endometriosis community more inclusive and also be allies to every warrior with endometriosis not just the ones we look like it was an absolute privilege to have lauren on this is a topic that has been on my heart for many years since working with the endometriosis like community medical professionals charities organizations media outlets etc um it's definitely something that i've really noticed and it was just such yeah I think it's such an important message that Lauren has to share and I'm so grateful that she you know came on the show to share it with us and um yeah she's doing brilliant work and I think that you're gonna find yeah find her an amazing woman. As you might know like I I always like to start with finding out more about each guest's experience of endometriosis or hormonal condition so would you be happy to tell us about your journey with endometriosis so far? Well, I was diagnosed with endometriosis on March the 18th, 2011. Um, I struggled with, you know, difficult periods uh, since, you know, my period had started when I was a little bit younger, started around my 13th birthday. I can remember that my mother would prescribe me or give me um, Percocet. She would cut it up and give me a piece of Percocet because my periods were so heavy and so um, painful. I would, you know, crawl up in a ball on the floor. Um, And back then, for me, that was just the norm. You know, we never questioned anything. Yeah. Um, You know, sometimes people would consider me to be dramatic or they just, you know, didn't understand. So when I believe I got to college, I had some things um, happen, which was really, you know, um, life-changing for me. I attended Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, And because I was away from home, I didn't want to go all the way back home just to go to the doctor's office. I uh, had stressed uh, myself during midterms. And I think that was the first time I noticed a shift in um, my health, I was taking midterms and I started stressing and then my period came and then it went away, but then it came right back. Uh, so, you know, when that happens and you're still a teenager or you're a young adult and you don't know anything, it kind of, uh, shocks you. So then I started going to a gynecologist in Baltimore, Maryland. Her name was Dr. Maria Kay. And she was just like this really sweet lady. It was a family owned business. Uh, Her son and daughter are both doctors and they both were in that same establishment. And I went um, and I sat down and I started talking to her about my cycle. I said, you know, right before my cycle would come, my left kneecap and my leg would hurt. I get really painful knees as well. And I've not heard anyone else say that. Yes, that's how I knew. That is exactly how I knew my cycle was on its way. Um, And that was right before. And then during, I would get sharp pains in my back and in my chest. Um, And then right after, my right knee would hurt because I was going off of my period. She was like, "Mm, I don't, that's not normal. And I was like, what? And she was like, yes, that's not normal. So let's do a um, pelvic exam. So we did a pelvic exam and she told me at that moment that my uterus was reverted. Um, And I had never heard anything like that before. Um, So it was really shocking to me and really different because I 
had somebody that I just met tell me something about myself versus doctors that I have had for my entire life. And it was so shocking. She told me that possibly I had endometriosis because a lot of women that have reverted uteruses have endometriosis. So I communicated with my dad. At the time, my mother had passed away, and this was 2010 going into 2011. So just imagine a young woman trying to tell yeah. her dad about, you know, her private area and things of that nature. So that was kind of difficult. Um, but we went ahead. I went to Johns Hopkins University and she uh, did the procedure where she did um, the laparoscopy and she diagnosed me on March 18th of 2011 with um endometriosis. So, you know, that was my first experience with it. I did not take it serious at that moment. I just took it as another weird thing that's happening in my life. Um, I did not start taking it serious until a couple of months later. I thought that I was going to be uh, better at, you know, being healthy, going outside, being active, running, stretching. And one day I decided to go around um, the SACU in my neighborhood where I was running and doing a lot of activity. And I actually, um, caused my cyst to rupture in my abdomen. Oh gosh. Um, and I knew I had a cyst because the doctor had told me that, but she had put me on lowest strength, which was supposed to, you know, um, basically either make sure it doesn't grow or just make sure that it stays at the same size. So whatever, you know, happened, happened, and I did not know that my cyst ruptured. So just imagine me working out, coming back in the house, and I'm like, ooh, I'm really out of shape. Oh, my gosh. Like, I'm still breathing heavy. It's 15 minutes after the fact, and, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on for me. Um, so I didn't realize it was something wrong until I went downstairs. I um, thought that by getting in the shower, I would feel okay. Uh, I got in the shower, and this was right after I used the restroom. So I started paying attention after the fact. So I hopped into the shower, and the shower started to get dark. Um, and then I started, you know, getting a little scared. So I said, well, you know, let me go lay down, and maybe that will fix the problem. If not, then I'm going to have to go to the hospital. So I get out of the shower, and I'm walking to my room, and... I pass out on the floor. Um, I do not know how long I was down there. My dad was upstairs at the dining room table, but I still don't know how long I was downstairs on the floor for. Um, you know, moving on after that situation happened, probably within the next week, um, I ignored it. I went to my family doctor and she said, you know, if you pass out again, go directly to um, the emergency room. So I took, you know, her... Um, her message and I did exactly what she told me to do. I did end up passing out and I missed the corner of the wall. My head had missed the corner of the wall by probably about two inches. So I did go to the emergency room and they, um, you know, did all of the tests. And then at the last minute, I used the restroom one more time to, you know, put urine in the cup for them to do a test. And I realized that that is what was causing me to pass out. So I tried to tell the nurse and she was like, no, 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 let's keep walking. You know, let's keep walking. And I'm like, I, you know, I can't control passing out. That's not something that I have uh, the means to do. <laughs> I ended up just passing out in the middle of the floor and waking up in excruciating pain. Um, I woke up from surgery. I had two gallons of blood in my abdomen. So they um, took you into surgery, like without, you didn't know you were going in, you passed out and then you woke up and you were in surgery. Well, no, no. I woke up in pain. Um, oh, right. Okay. Still, I, I had a time frame. I still was waiting. The doctor still had to run multiple tests, the iodine, okay. the uh, CT scans. Um, they, you know, they did the pregnancy test. They had to do multiple things first. And yeah. it was a really long process. Um, I actually hate hospitals, to be quite honest. Um, and it was like a really frightening situation for me. And I'm, you know, I take pride in being strong, but that was like the most scariest experience of my life because in this situation, like you really have no control of what is getting ready to happen to you. 
Um, so, you know, with all that happening and things of that nature, um, I went into surgery. The next day I woke up, um, my brother was there and he said, you had two gallons of blood in your abdomen. And then from that moment on, I was like, oh, this is serious. Like you need to find some information, do research and figure out how, um, to make your life a little bit easier and better. Mm. So how are you managing like today? Does, is it, do you feel like you found a way of managing that has helped? Um, I think I do the best that I can. Yeah. I do take vitamins. Um, I try to, you know, watch what I eat. I know what my triggers are. Um, but I'm not going to lie. I do have my days where I eat pizza or I eat ice cream. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and, and then I struggle, you know, yeah, yeah. but I, I'm managing, you know, um, mm. some new, new things have started happening to me where it's like the brain fog, yeah. um, has started happening and that has probably been within the last couple of years. I had a couple of scares um, last year and the year before where, you know, I was in the kitchen cooking um, and I slowly looked up, you know, you're just in the kitchen, you're not thinking about anything. I looked up and next thing you know, I started hyperventilating and I couldn't breathe. And, you know, so I'm just trying to pace myself and pay attention to the foods that I'm eating. Um, you know, I'm still learning. There's really no handbook to this. They don't give you a pamphlet <laughs> prior to, you know, leaving the hospital telling you that this may cause you faint. They just say, hey, you're diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, and that's all I have for you. Figure it out for yourself. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning. Vitamins are a big thing for me. Um, watching what I eat, um, you know, making sure that I have enough vitamins. I take macaroon. I am um, trying to make sure I have B12 in my system. I'm trying to make sure that I am, you know, paying attention. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Sounds like we do some similar things. So tell us about Endoblack and what that stands for. And kind of when when did you decide to launch Endoblack? And what was the kind of motivation behind that? Well, um, Indo Black was actually launched in October of 2015. Um, but because endometriosis, I did not really push it until 2017. Um, I didn't start the platform. I didn't do the Instagram. It was more so about, you know, making sure that I was at a safe place for myself before I tried to branch out. Um, the reason why I did create Endo Black is mainly because when I was diagnosed with endometriosis in 2011, I tried to do some research. Um, and there was a lot of research, but none of it uh, circulated around African-American women. It did not include me in the statistics. Um, when I did research it, it did state that this was a white woman's working disease. Um, so it really did not... Um, cater to what I look like. So I kind of felt alone. Yeah. Um, and the main reason why I've even started this is because if I felt alone while looking for people um, that had endometriosis that looked like me, I can just imagine so many other women that were out there looking. And I didn't want to, you know, um, continue to do stuff that did not include people. I wanted us to be at a place where we're including everybody. And Indo Black is not just for African-American women. It is for women of color. It is for women that are Native Americans, Hispanics, um, you know, Asian, any anything that does not or has not been identified. Because even still, I'm seeing women of other ethnicities that have endometriosis and they're not being represented as well. Um, so that is the reason why I started it. Um, my experience with it has been amazing so far. With launching it in 2015, I was able to do a little bit of research prior to really pushing it in 2017. Um, I've a been able to formulate some goals that I need to make sure that Indo Black takes care of, um, whether it's you know creating an atmosphere of support um, because I don't want anybody to feel alone also to create endosisterly love, true bonds, and friendships, because I think that's the biggest thing that we need 
before we have anything else is making sure that we're okay. Um, also, opportunities for education on women's reproductive health in the community. I understand that endometriosis is very important. However, there are so many other um, diseases or symptoms that are out there with women's reproductive health right now that nobody knows about. And I'm still, you know, learning about it, what, regardless if it's like the mortality rate, rate of women um, that are giving birth and they're dying right after giving birth. So, you know, speaking about the women's reproductive health is really big. And then lastly, you know, just creating a dialogue around what policy laws and regulations we need to change so that we can meet um, our needs because the healthcare system does not include um, us sometimes when we're just, you know, doing regular checkups. I remember um, I had a couple of questions from my gynecologist and my healthcare called and they told me, well, like, you know, if you need to go, it has to be a reason why you have to go. And I'm like, well, you know, the reason, I don't really know the reason. She's like, well, is there a discharge? Um, is there something happening? I said, well, does that really have to be? She was like, do you, is there a visible reason? And that's the only way that healthcare is going to cover you going to the hospital. And I know everybody has different experiences with healthcare, but that's just some of my experiences with it. Um, and that's that's mainly what Indo Black is for. We're trying to create a safe space. We're trying to include everybody and making sure that we are all taken care of and that we're raising awareness. I mean, I love I love the idea of Indo Black, and I never I didn't realize that you started in 2015. So it, like, it's amazing that you've been doing this work for so long. So in terms of like, I know that you you kind of like mentioned your goals. In terms of like the kind of the services that you offer through Endo Black, is there like a community or like a Facebook group? Um, yes. So we have our Instagram page, which is Endo underscore Black. We have our public group on Facebook, which is um, Black Women with Endo Metriosis. Mm-hmm. And then we have the private group where we allow women to come inside the group and talk about their problems um, and hopefully get resolutions. Um, African-American women affected by endometriosis. Um, So that's what we have on social media. Um, Right now I am pushing our info, which is E-N-F-O, our Indo Black newsletter. Um, So that is something that I have. We also will be starting up our support groups in the month of October. Oh, that's Um, exciting. It is really exciting. I have somebody on our team. Um, Every time we try to have a meeting, the first part of the meeting is 30 to 45 minutes of us talking about our problems with endometriosis. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) it's so difficult to even start the meeting, but it's like, I don't want to start a meeting unless we're all ready. You know, if we're in the mental state, if we're comfortable, if we are capable. So I want to make sure that we're um, providing a safe space for women to come and talk about their issues and try to get understanding. Um, We also have our ambassadors program and our ambassadors program is unfortunately only in the United States at this moment, but we're hoping to expand it right now. We have about 14 ambassadors and what they are doing is they are um, in states like California, uh, Pittsburgh. um, We have New York, we have Tennessee. um, I believe we have Texas. So we have a couple of ambassadors in certain locations and the plan is to hopefully one day travel to those locations and then have events in those locations Um, because we're noticing that there are not a lot of safe spaces for women uh, with endometriosis and then there are not a lot of safe spaces with women that are african-american with endometriosis so we're trying to create um uh you know a support group nationwide because there are a lot of people that ask, like, well, are there, is there somebody in this location? Is there somebody in this location? And I'm like, 
you know, at this time, no. I really wish that I was an octopus and I could <laughs> do multiple things at one time. But, you know, I'm not there yet. However, I know that eventually we will get to a place where we will be having multiple support groups and things of that nature. Um, something else that we're looking into doing is working with another endo advocate um, on doing a school program. Oh, my gosh, that would and be amazing. Yeah, she's already doing it. Um, I don't want to name drop because I want to make sure that she's comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, but she's already in the process of, you know, working on it. She's been in the school system, so she's building her curriculum. She's going to train our girls and they're going to go out in our area and they're going to teach her program. Um, I'm also going to connect with my uh alma mater Morgan State University to do an event on their campus, hopefully in the month of October, um, to promote, you know, women reproductive health conversations. I think that's the biggest thing as well is people are so afraid to discuss women's reproductive health. Um, and this is something that's really big in the African-American community where we don't talk about it. Because um, one thing my mother did tell me, she was saying that uh, unfortunately, it is not ladylike to speak about our periods. Um, and, you know, I know that we all have opportunities to grow. So if my mother was alive, I know that she would be on the, on board with what I was doing now. And she would, you know, she would understand that it's important for us to talk about, uh, you know, our periods and our cycles because we cannot compare them if we don't talk about it. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, so. You know, that is something that we're trying to do. And then we, we have a lot of other things that we're, you know, working on. Um, so I don't want to drop too many hints and things of that nature. But I, I just hope that we can keep moving forward. And I love to collaborate with people. I just got finished to collaborate with um, Cassie from Dancing Off the Endo. She came to um, Washington, D.C. just last week and had an awesome event with some of the girls here in uh, Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., and we just had a really great time. So we're trying to make sure that we collaborate with as many people as possible because there are so many women doing great things in the community, Absolutely. whether it's, you know, in a different state or not. I will travel. They can travel here. Um, so I'm really big on collaborative. That's amazing. And honestly, it sounds like you're doing so much already. And yeah, like I, we obviously I started this endo life in 2000 and I think it was like winter 2014, like November or something. So I, I totally know how like you just you do want to be like an octopus with like multiple arms <laughs> to do everything. But it's right. yeah, you're like there's only so many hours in the day and yeah <laughs> and then managing a chronic illness as well on top of it can be can be a challenge um so you you have mentioned this already so if this isn't something that there's kind of like more to explore then don't worry but I wondered like I I read some shocking stats recently that I was actually trying to find again before um we spoke but I couldn't find them in the book that I um that I read them in and it was like a press copy, like before it had been officially released. So it wasn't indexed yet. So I couldn't find the stats. But um, I've I've seen some really shocking stats around like productive health and people of color and how they're treated. And I was just wondering, and also, you know, you've mentioned that in like black communities that there's not really like an open dialogue about reproductive health. So I was wondering, what are the issues facing African-Americans and people of color with endo and any other kind of gyne conditions? Um, well, there are so many difficult um, things that have been, you know, taking place. I will say that for one, I have been lucky. Um, I live in a predominantly African-American community in Prince George's County, which is located in Maryland. Um, so I have not had... Um, as, you know, a terrible experience as some people have. Yeah. However, when, you know, you're going to the doctor's office and you're trying to communicate with them about certain things, um, a lot of times they do not believe you. Um, I've seen and heard of uh, doctors stating that they um, believe that African-American women can deal with pain, so they don't prescribe uh, women with as much pain medicine as they would anybody else. Yeah, I think there's a stat around that, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As well as, you know, just being believed 
I think that's the biggest thing. Um, being able to go to the doctor and being believed. You see that uh, Serena Williams, who has more money than me, uh, communicated with her doctor's office about, you know, blood clots. And I believe she had um, health care issues when she was giving birth. And she communicated several times about that. And they wouldn't even believe her. And she's a superstar. Um, you have many other women who go through certain situations where they're trying to communicate and they're ignored or they're misdiagnosed. And it's not even really just women um, or gynecologists. I think that this stems further uh, along the lines of just racism in the medical field and how to uh, work with people of color. How do we manage um, their health, you know, and a lot of times um, I did speak with somebody before. A lot of times when they find out about diseases and they try to do research, they have um, there are people that donate their bodies to research, and a lot of people don't know about that. So a lot of the people that are donated to do research on are white males. And you can't do research on a white male and get information about women. That's, That's not so, going to work. Yeah, I wonder why it's white men who don't, like... Well, it's because it costs money. It, it costs money to donate your body. Oh, really? So you yes. pay to donate your body? Yes, you have <laughs> to go through a whole cycle of paying to donate your body to research because you have to transport it and, you know, you have to make sure that it's a certain type of way. Um, so that's well, mainly because people don't advertise that. And two, because that costs money. And that's a lot. You know, a lot of people really don't want to donate their loved ones to research um, because they don't want their loved ones to be guinea pigs. Um you know, but that's neither here nor there. So it's a lot of different things that um, go into that, just basically communication. How have doctors been trained? I've had a conversation uh, with another endo sister of ours, and she spoke about how from the beginning until now, they have uh, had people that operated on African-American women with an without anesthesia. We have J. Marion Sims. J. Marion Sims was the father of gynecology. Well, he also operated on African-American women without anesthesia. Yeah, I've heard about this. So, you know, in that sense right there, they didn't care about African-American women. So from that point on, that has been taught through gynecology health. That has been taught through all of the stuff that they've been doing with the medical field. Um, so it, it transpires. It goes all the way back. Um, I'm not sure why people don't listen, um, but they don't believe black women. And I'm not sure. And they sometimes just override. And it kind of goes back to what I said about when I communicated to the nurse um, after I realized that what was triggering me to pass out was me using the restroom. Mm. I was communicating that I was getting ready to pass out. I had passed out several times before, so I knew what it felt like. I communicated. I told her I need to sit down. I said it several times, and, you know, I could have hit my head on the ground. Um, I could have, you know, broken something, but she did not listen to me. And not only did she not listen to me, but she kept trying to push me to do something that I knew I was not capable of doing. Yeah. So it just goes back to not being listened and recognized. Um, because at the end of the day, we know our bodies and granted sometimes, you know, we could be wrong, but if we are, um, doing customer service, um, what I've been taught is customers are always right. So true. You know, so if if I'm telling you I'm uncomfortable, if I'm telling you I'm getting ready to pass out, if I'm telling you that I have pain in my, um, you know, on the left side of my body, if I'm telling you that my cycle is heavy, if I'm telling you I'm in pain, then, you know, please listen to me. Run the test that I asked you to run. I did go to the hospital one time and I told them I needed you to run an x-ray they refused to run an x-ray on me. So I had to leave the hospital. My aunt had to pick me up and we had to go to another hospital. So it's just like multiple situations. Um, there are many statistics that state that. And I just recently did a survey for Indo Black. We had about 350 women that participated. Um, and they were from, you know, 
uh, from the Caribbean, they were from Africa, they're from America, they're from UK, um, they're from multiple places in America, and they are either African American, Asian, Native American, Hispanic, um, and they did not feel comfortable. Many of them said they did not feel comfortable with their gynecologist, that they did not trust their gynecologist. Um, many of them said that they were not diagnosed through their doctors. And many of them also stated things that made me feel glad that I'm doing this, but it really hurt me to my core yeah. because I felt like they were not being listened to. And it's being repeated over and over and over and over again in many, many places. And it's, it's just not fair. I'm going to try and find these stats and put them in the show notes because I know the ones that you're talking about and the kind of figures are just like shocking and I I feel like everyone needs to needs to know about it. So I'm going to I'm going to try and hunt them down for these um for the show notes. So given everything that is going on well obviously we have issues around endo and like on a wider scale like endo being underdiagnosed being taken like in the UK it takes like seven and a half years on average to be diagnosed I think in America it takes 10 am I right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so what do you think needs to change in order for the medical and and also the endo communities um you know that exist throughout the world to become more inclusive and supportive of African-Americans and people of color with endo? I think a lot needs to change. Uh, It needs to start at the core. Um, It needs to start at the medical field. We need to have more panel discussions. We need to um, include more people of color into the groups that they're discussing. A lot of times when we're talking about endometriosis or we're talking about lupus or we're talking about ovarian cancer, you do not see faces that represent African-Americans. You don't see faces that represent people of color or women of color. Um, and I think the easiest route to do is just to ask the people that are suffering. Once you ask the people that are suffering with it what they need, what they want, I think that will start trickling onto certain things. So you have doctors that do amazing jobs. Um, There are some, you know, uh, OBGYNs that are amazing at what they do. And they, you know, some of them are not African-Americans, but they understand that there is a huge disparity. Um, And I appreciate them. And I applaud them and I encourage them to continue doing that. But I also ask them to speak up about it. I think that is the biggest thing. If you are, you know, looking at a patient and you notice certain things, but you're not sharing it, you may be helping a few, but you're not helping all. Um, You know, sometimes we need to go to the max. We need to sit in front of the main people, having um, discussions about it, going to Congress, making laws, making, uh, you know, suggestions and bills and policies that include people of color. I think that's the biggest thing as well, because what happens is we are failing um, people of color because we're not including them in the discussions. And Mm -hmm. The doctors that are seeing us, that are helping us, sometimes they do speak up. You do have those doctors that do speak up, and that's how we have the research studies now. Um, But if we include people of color, because we have doctors that are OBGYNs, we have doctors that are endospecialists, so we have to make sure they're included in those discussions as well. Um, And I think that's really it. If you have a voice and you know something is wrong, the biggest thing you can do is speak up for it. And then everything else will begin to trickle down from there, you know, because endometriosis is still new. People don't know about endometriosis. And that goes for all women. That's not just the thing of women for color, but it's so new for everybody that we're all still learning. Doctors are still learning. Um, we're still learning because we're the people that are going through it. And that's why we don't know how to manage it correctly, because we, we're just kind of like going with the wind. Yeah. at this point. Um, so it's just it's just about opening up those doors for people of color to come in and communicate to make sure that the doctors that are seeing us, that are doing a great job, are communicating and sharing what they know. 
and making sure that we're opening up a door for doctors that are African-American to come in and do their work as well. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. BU create gorgeous, natural and organic CBD products that I love. To get the most out of your CBD, BU recommends that you use the products as per instructions on a daily basis for your entire cycle. The effects of CBD are much more obvious when used consistently as the CBD really gets to work on your inflammation levels. It's also recommended that you give CBD around two to three months to see how your body responds to it and whether it works for you. CBD doesn't work for everyone, but it definitely seems to be something that's popular within the endo community and kind of painful period community at the moment. Lots of people are finding relief. I would love to hear how you get on with it. If you do try any of the products, let me know. To shop the range, just head to the link in my show notes and start soothing period cramps the natural way. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis symptom tracker. If you kind of feel a bit overwhelmed by your pain and your symptoms and you really just don't know where to start with managing them, then tracking your symptoms over a couple of months or even just a month to see what your triggers might be could be really helpful. I've put together a free download that helps you track your pain, your mood, your brain fog, uh, your bloating, where you are in your cycle, your eating habits, your stress levels, so many different things um, in a really simple and effective way. If you'd like to try it out, um, obviously it's free, just head to the show notes, follow the link and you can get your own copy. What do you think about um, media and material, like advertising material, like pamphlets and leaflets and stuff? Because in my experience in the UK, I've noticed that a lot of official kind of guidance or bodies of like organizations, like governing bodies and stuff, a lot of the materials feature like white women and it kind Mm -hmm. of stops there. Have you noticed that to be an issue in America? Yes, I have. Uh, that goes back to when I was first diagnosed on trying to get information about endometriosis. If, if representation isn't shown, that already throws it off. And that can, like representation is the simplest way to get people to notice and to pay attention. A lot of times, African-American women don't even know what endometriosis is because if it's always a woman um, who is white on, you know, the cover of the advertisement, they will walk right past it. Yeah. Because they don't think that it affects them. Yeah. If we see constant commercials about endometriosis and there are no women that look like us, well, that must not be for us. You know, so it... We just have to make sure that we are including everybody. And again, it's not just African-American women, Native American women, Hispanic women. It just it just needs to be a little bit more diverse, even with pamphlets. Like if we have pamphlets, um, we need to make sure the pamphlets can be translated into a different language mm. to include people. So, so certain true. little things like that, we just need to make sure that we are inclusive and not you know, you know, exclude anybody. And it's, I know it's not on purpose. That's the thing. It's not on purpose. Um, when we do certain things, it's not intentional. It's not malicious. It's just, that's what the norm is. So that's what, you know, people go with. But when we start to shake it up and make sure that we are asking the public what they want, that is when we are starting to see, you know, that's why people do focus groups. We need to see, or we need to hear um, the voices of other people make sure that they're represented because if they're not represented, then the people um, that don't have access to those resources, you know, if it's a commercial on television, that's totally different. But if I'm walking by in the grocery store and I see a sign that says endometriosis with a white woman on it, I'm going to be like, oh, well, OK, you know, well, that's not that's not for me. You know, so we just need to make sure that we pick up on it. And it does happen a lot in America. Um, it doesn't just happen with endometriosis. It happens with uh, a lot of different things. Um, 
it goes back to ovarian cancer, uh, fibroids, um, PCOS, things of that nature, because I, my friend was actually just diagnosed with PCOS. And I have another friend that has PCOS. And, you know, it's just like, oh, well, I didn't know. You know, this is something that I'm learning, too, because, again, I have endometriosis, but there are so many other diseases that come into play when it comes to women reproductive health. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely something that I, I feel like it's changing in the UK, but very slowly. Mm -hmm. It is changing. It is. I think that's the biggest thing, that it is starting to change. But like you said, it is slow. Yeah. happening. Yeah, for sure. It's it's slow. (laughs) Um, So for anyone who's listening who really resonates with what you're saying, what advice would you give to any people of colour who are feeling unheard, ignored or maybe they have been like really obviously mistreated by medical professionals when it comes to like trying to get support or any care for endometriosis well the first thing I would suggest is uh don't give up we get pushed down so much sometimes and again this is for all women at this point don't give up you know you you go to the doctor's office every you know, you could say every blue moon, honestly, you know, (laughs) it it comes to a point where we're always at the doctor's office and we are tired. We're tired of going. Um, We're tired of being told no. We're tired of being told that we are not telling the truth or that what we're saying isn't correct. So, you know, keep going, keep getting second opinions. Uh, And what I do want to advise people to do is speak out. A lot of times we get to this point where we're so tired and we're so overwhelmed, but we don't realize that if we don't speak out about it, we won't impact somebody else. There's yeah. somebody else that's struggling with what we have. There's someone else that's struggling and they are going through it. And if we speak out about it, hopefully we can continue to connect with that person and it will continue to trickle. Mm. you know, like a snowball effect. Because if I'm speaking out about it, I'm hoping that I'm motivating and inspiring other women to speak out about it. And then it keeps going. Uh, Another thing that I want people to do is speak out about those doctors that are not doing what they're, you know, what they're supposed to do. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because that will help us stop wasting our time by going to those wrong doctors. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you're young, it can be really easy to like, just lose your confidence and kind of not say anything because you don't want to get someone into trouble. Yeah. You know, and I don't want to get people into trouble, but a doctor's job is to assist me. A doctor's job is to make sure that I am assisted in the most easiest way. Now, if they, I do appreciate doctors that say they don't know, that's something totally different. But if you are telling me one thing and you don't know, and you're just telling me to get me out of your office and to get your paycheck, it is an inconvenience and it is a problem. And it hurts other people because there are people that have had surgeries, repeated surgeries, um, when it comes to excisions and, you know, just making sure that they are taking care of the correct way. Because people are having surgeries for no apparent reason sometimes. Mm, yeah, for sure. I, I know people, especially in the US, who have undergone like multiple surgeries that have caused multiple. them more, more damage. And even even me, like my first surgery, I didn't know that um, excision was a gold standard at that time. So I just went mm-hmm. with what, what there was. And obviously that right. was laser. But my second time, I waited an extra year. I could have been seen by another hospital. But I waited another year to be seen by what was supposed to be a specialist hospital who was going to do excision. And they didn't do excision on me. They did laser. And when I went back and I was like, I'm in so much, I'm still in like pain. They were like, oh, well, you know, it was laser, like ablation. So that still leaves a couple of cells behind. It's like, and it's like, that's not what we talked about. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, and then but you you're asleep. You so you, that? yeah, you didn't tell me like. <laughs> It's like, do I need to have my family member look over me during the surgery process? I mean, and that's the that's the thing. Like, we are putting our lives in these doctors' hands. Yes, we yeah. are trusting them. They are cutting us open on a table, 
in doing surgical work on us. So I expect you to do what you told me that you're going to do. I expect you to save my life at this moment. And that is the biggest thing because a lot of times we are, um, like you said, some people are young, so they don't want to get anybody fired. I'm not in the business of getting anybody fired, but I'm also not in the business of being cut open for no apparent reason. I'm not. And I think people need to be um, aware of the doctors that are doing things to people that, that it's not fair. It's not fair. And it's happening to not just one woman, because clearly they are in business. So it's going to continue to happen multiple times. And women are going to keep going to these doctors that are hindering them. They're telling them that they can't get pregnant. I had a, I have a cousin, um, our family doctor, told her that she could not give birth. So she thought that she couldn't have a baby. She had come to terms with it. She was okay with it. And now she has two kids. So why did he say that? That was just something that the doctor said. And I spoke to her about it. My doctor, I, and this, remember, going back to what I said about how I went to a whole new doctor to yeah. be diagnosed with endometriosis. The doctor that she had was my doctor. And she never diagnosed me with endometriosis. She never told me that my uterus was reverted. Right. She never, and this was a female doctor at that. Mm. So she never said any of that stuff. And when I tell you our whole family went to that doctor, our entire family went to that doctor. And when um, I decided to go to a new doctor, Dr. Caseda, uh, who's an excellent uh, doctor um, at a hospital in Georgetown, he talked to me. I told him that someone told me about pregnancy and their fertility rate with endometriosis. He said, don't ever let anybody tell you that you cannot get pregnant until you try to get pregnant. Yeah. Because they do not know. So when my cousin <laughs> told me that she couldn't get pregnant, it was weird because I knew she was pregnant. I said, you're pregnant. She was like, no, I can't get pregnant. I said, well, you're pregnant. I know you're pregnant. <laughs> so um, later for all that, and then when she got home, because we was on vacation, she went home in November and in December, she took the test and she said, I am pregnant. I said, I told you. <laughs> I tried to tell you. And she was like, I don't know why this doctor would tell me that. And I said, if you would have told me, I would have told you what my doctor told me. So now she has two children, a boy and a girl. And, you know, it's just crazy things like that that make me feel like I know that this isn't one situation. How many other people has she told that they could not get pregnant? And they never tried to get pregnant or they gave up or they had a surgery where they removed their organs. You know, so it was just certain things like that that put me in a mindset of there needs to be more communication. There needs to be more advocacy work. There needs to be more policies and, you know, um, laws put into place with Congress. We cannot just allow doctors to manipulate people like that. And if you don't know, it's OK to say that you don't know. That yeah. is OK. And so um, that's pretty much it. I can just encourage women to be encouraging to other women and keep pushing. Was that, did you say that was your cousin who they said? Yes, did, my cousin. So does she, have en, does she have endo as well? She doesn't even have endometriosis. <laughs> she just told her that she couldn't give birth. So, for like, but for no, so no reason. She just... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, um, and then, you know, in our family... Endometriosis isn't really, we don't really know what causes it, but it says it's, um, it could be biological. So my, my mother's mother actually, uh, gave birth and I think it was the fifth child and she died during, um, child labor. Um, so, you know, my family has had a rough time when it comes to the woman's reproductive health. Uh, my other cousin, they forced her to be on menopause, um, at an early age because of her body. And then another cousin, she's had six miscarriages, but she's had one child. Wow. So it's just like my family has had a difficult time. Um, I'm not sure if anybody else in my family has endometriosis, and I'm not sure if they've even gone to the doctors to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, because right, we've, yeah. you know, I don't want to try to push that on them for them to try to figure it out. At this point in their life, I feel like they're old enough and they're comfortable with where they are 
that they're okay. So it's no point of them going to get, you know, more diagnosis and, you know, being more confused than what they are. So it's just like we've heard multiple stories from women in my family um, where it's just confusing and it's heartbreaking that we go through these things. And I know for a fact that I'm lucky to be in the area that I am in, but I know for a fact that there aren't resources in certain areas. Um, And my cousins, they live in different areas. So, you know, in South Carolina, um, you have Tennessee, you have Texas. So depending on the resources in those locations, they may not be able to get diagnosed with endometriosis. They may not even have people in those areas that are aware of what endometriosis really is. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's just more about uh, awareness and making sure that we build and communicate. Um, I'm really thankful because um, recently someone from Morgan State University, she reached out to me and she told me that a young adult, a young lady wanted to reach out to me. She is a freshman in college and she's diagnosed with endometriosis. And I'm thinking to myself, how lucky is she to know that she's diagnosed as a freshman in college? I didn't know until yeah, I graduated that, Yeah, college. when she's young, yeah. hmm So I was thinking how lucky she is. You know, so now we're at a place where we may be getting better, um, but I think we have a lot of uh, work that we need to continue to do in the community to make sure that we are uh, getting better. I have so many people that went to college with me um, that have endometriosis, and I found that out after we graduated. So I'm still having women come up to me because of endoblack and because of what I'm doing to say, you know, I struggled in college. I didn't know you had it. I would have, you know, talked. I said, I didn't know I had it. <laughs> so it wasn't <laughs> something that we, you know, we could have talked about. Yeah, but yeah. now we're at a good place. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can continue to push and we can continue to talk about it and raise awareness. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, to kind of like round up and leave people with, you know, kind of key actions to take away, how can people get involved with Endo Black and support you guys and your mission? Well, we have a a website. Everybody can go check out our website at endoblack.org. We have all of the information there from our goals to how you can get involved, whether it's just supporting us. Um, volunteering with us because we are going to start doing events. We're going to start doing support groups. Um, We're looking for writers for our newsletters. We're looking for ambassadors for our next term starting in January of 2020. We are looking for women who are um, interested in promoting what we're doing. And we're, you know, looking for women that are interested in really just pushing the movement. And even if it is just sharing their story, um, you know, a simple a share will always help. Um, we're looking for people that are willing to donate to our cause because the funds that we receive will be going back into the community and helping us do, um, you know, events where we're trying to do panel discussions so that we can educate more women about this so we can, you know, keep our uh, website up and running mainly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that we can get yeah, more Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, I know, yeah. It's expensive. Ooh. Um, So we're just trying to make sure that we continue to grow and expand. Um, So we're looking for anybody to support. If they want to contact um, Indoblack, they can email us at theindoblack at gmail.com. Again, you can check out the website at indoblack.org. Our Instagram is indo underscore black. Um, Our Facebook group, public, which is Black Women with Endometriosis. And then we have our private group, which is African-American women with affected by endometriosis. Again, we are looking to do partnerships. We're looking to collaborate. I am currently in the process of pushing this over into a nonprofit organization. Oh, that's I just exciting. Got, I, I am so excited for this. Um, we have um, about four board members. I'm trying to get three more board members and we're going to be up and running hopefully, um, by October where we're sitting down there, we're doing strategic plannings because we really want to meet the needs of women in the community. Again, we are raising awareness for women, um, that are African-American with endometriosis, but we are inclusive and we include everybody in this process because we are all struggling with this and we are all trying to promote it. Um, So I just want to make sure that everybody is aware of all of the beautiful things that we're doing and we would love to connect and work with anybody. Thank you so much. I love that you're doing so much work and 
I just think what you're doing is so, so important. And, you know, like I feel has been a really, I mean, I've worked in endometriosis charities and I've seen it as a really big gap. Um, so thank you for doing this work. And I will put all of those links in the show notes so people can make sure you like can get in touch with you and get involved. And yeah, good luck with becoming a nonprofit. That's so super exciting. I'm so excited. This is by far the funnest thing of 2019 for me. And and I will add fun and stressful, but yeah. fun more so. <laughs> uh, well, good luck. And thank you so much for coming on. It's been such an honor. Yes, thank you so much. And I appreciate everything that you do in the community Aww. and the fact that you reached out to me. Um, and you're in a different country. So I'm really excited. Uh, and it, it means a lot. And I just... You know, I encourage you to continue doing what you're doing and make sure that we are all just being great at what we do. So thank you again for your support. Absolutely. Thank you for yours. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website which is www.thisendolife.com and you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website Um, I've put the link in my show notes it's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. (laughs) 